Hey, Rarecast listeners. This year, Global Genes is bringing together its Rare Health Equity Forum and Rare Advocacy Summit for the Week in Rare, which will also include its Rare Champions of Hope Awards ceremony and annual membership meetings for the Global Advocacy Alliance and Rare Corporate Alliance. This is a unique opportunity to gather and engage with rare disease advocates and leaders in the same space for conversations. Join us September 18th to 21st in San Diego, California for the Global Genes Week in Rare. For more information, go to www.globalgenes.org and click on Events under the Connect tab. Hope to see you there. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Regulatory T-cells target systemic inflammation and neuroinflammation. But when they fail to function properly, they can drive serious health conditions, including neurodegenerative, metabolic, and autoimmune diseases. Koya Therapeutics is developing a pipeline of therapies designed to restore the ability of Tregs to modulate the immune system and reduce inflammation. The company's lead experimental therapy is a combination of two biologics designed to treat ALS by boosting anti-inflammatory Tregs while suppressing other immune cells that drive inflammation. We spoke to Howard Berman, chairman and CEO of Koya, about the role of inflammation in neurodegenerative conditions, Tregs, and the company's experimental therapy to treat ALS. Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about Koya Therapeutics, the neurodegenerative disease, ALS, and your combination therapy and development designed to address an underlying inflammatory response that drives this condition. Let's start with ALS. For people not familiar with it, what is it? ALS is a neurologic disease of the motor neurons. And unfortunately, what is the result of this disease is the muscles begin to stop working. And that includes muscles in the periphery. It also includes muscles around near your lungs. And unfortunately, and ultimately patients are unable to breathe at towards the end of life. And that's the way that uh, some patients uh, uh, die from the disease, but it's a, progressive neurodegenerative diseases of the motor neurons. Uh, The neurons get into trouble, unfortunately, and uh, inflammation plays a very important role in the process of this disease. Well, how is it treated today and and what's the prognosis for someone with the condition? So unfortunately, there's not a lot of treatments out there that are successful. Most patients are either given a regimen of uh, supportive care, And then the newly approved drug, there's a drug called Relivrio, which is a combination of two different types of drugs, but it only slows progression in a very uh, 
small manner uh, relative to what they would traditionally decline it. And there's another drug called Radicava, which has uh, been approved by a company called Mitsubishi. We believe that's a free radical scavenger. But again, like uh, Relivrio, it only slows progression very, very slowly. So the ultimate uh, result is that patients, uh, they unfortunately last only two to five years. And the, um, the interesting thing about the disease is that it's heterogeneous. Some patients may live for a, quite a long time, like you know about Stephen Hawking. Other patients uh, die much quicker. Lou Gehrig died very quickly. So, but the average decline and the average uh, longevity of these patients is between two to five years. There was actually uh, an interesting academic study about 10 years ago that suggested Lou Gehrig didn't have ALS, but had CET. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, I would, of course, have uh, Dr. Appel and, and other experts weigh on that. But, you know, that's the, the that's the characterized definition of what he had. So... I don't think uh, a, a true answer will uh, will ever be known about him, but he did certainly die quite quickly. And uh, you know, I guess what I, from what I've heard is some of the symptoms that he had uh, were consistent. There has been growing activity around ALS and uh, a growing pipeline of therapies to treat neurodegenerative conditions more broadly. At the same time, there's been some controversy around the FDA's use of accelerated approval in these conditions and the level of proof required to demonstrate efficacy. What's your sense of how the FDA is approaching these conditions and have any of these controversies appeared to change FDA's approach? Yeah, I think that there is much more openness on the part of the FDA and we're very grateful for that. They realize and recognize that they there are not a lot of treatments for this regimen patient for this disease. Patients are declined and they just unfortunately don't have much other option. So this sentiment by FDA is conducive to something called regulatory flexibility. And what it allows the FDA is to take a look at a study and uh, use their discretion in terms of the, uh, the requirements that the that the sponsor will need in order to get an approval. And if you saw recently, there was a drug called Tofersen by a company called Biogen, and that was for a SOD mutation. Well, the study was not a successful drug in terms of the traditional uh, outcome of ALS-FRS, but uh, ultimately it was approved because they were able to show changes in certain biomarkers, uh, something called neurofilament light. It's a marker of neurodegeneration. So there is regulatory flexibility. They do really look for drugs that are providing meaningful differences and benefits. And they're looking for more objective biomarkers, more objective markers of the progression of the disease or the treatments that are modifying those markers. And that's what we're working on at COYA is not just neurofilament light, but we've got a series of biomarkers which uh, is forthcoming, which we're very excited about that really gives some strong insight into the disease process. There are a, a few challenges conducting clinical trials for these conditions. With other therapies in development for ALS, are you concerned there will be any challenge with regards to enrolling patients in studies? You know, we have put together a 
group of some of the top experts. We just brought on Merit Sakovich from MassGen, and we've got other key opinion leaders, and we don't anticipate, and neither do our experts, the uh, inability to enroll. I think the data that we've showed in terms of the uh, ability to potentially significantly slow or even stop the progression is exciting and patients will be very compelled to participate in our uh, trial, forthcoming trial. But I will tell you that there are certain designs that people will appreciate more. If it's, uh, for example, a two-to-one randomization in, active, in favor of the active, uh, those studies will probably enroll better than if you're one-to-one -one randomized. And of course, all studies have what's called a, or at least they're expected to, in ALS, to have an open label extension where the placebo arm crosses over to the active arm. Uh, just to get back to your point, no, I don't think we're going to have an issue enrollment. At, at the same time, how important is patient selection with regards to where someone is in terms of the progress of the disease? Is there a sweet spot between a patient being far enough along to show the impact of the disease, but not too far along so that the benefit of the drug can be demonstrated? That's an excellent question. And there's multiple components that one has to consider when enrolling a patient. One has to consider the, the burden of disease. So the score that the patient has in terms of their ALS before entering into the study, as well as the rate of decline prior to treatment. Uh, you don't want patients who are progressing too rapidly, and you don't want patients who are not progressing at all, because then you bias, the, the data could be biased in, in some capacity. So there is a sweet spot in terms of the disease uh, progression. Now, I will tell you there's reasons for that, and we've found this. If you look at the level of inflammation, oxidative stress in patients that are much more much further along in the disease process, you will find that the levels are significantly higher. And so we believe, and the, the mechanistic reasons are that the more inflammation that the patient has, the more difficult it is to intervene with appropriate therapies. Let's talk about inflammation. Koya, among other companies, are increasingly looking at inflammation with regards to not only ALS, but other neurodegenerative diseases. What role does the inflammatory process play in ALS, and how linked is that to the process of decline in patients? Yeah. Well, we look at inflammation is a very broad category that includes many different aspects to it. There are multiple cytokines. There's multiple uh, cellular types that are associated with inflammation. So it's a broad category that everyone uses. Other companies are targeting, for example, different components of the immune system. They're targeting the IL-6 and the complement pathway and the IL-1 beta. TNF-alpha, but those are just individual cytokines. And unfortunately, the immune system is redundant. So our approach, and I'm going to get to specifically why I think our approach to inflammation is important in ALS, but our approach targets multiple aspects of the inflammatory cascade. We target the regulatory T cells. Why the regulatory T cells? Well, we discovered, Dr. Appel did, that the and he looked at large numbers of patients, that the, um, the, the degree of dysfunction of the Tregs corresponds to not just the 
degree of decline of the patients, but the survival. So if the patient is having, for example, a dysfunctional Treg, so the Tregs are not are 40 or 50% as functional as, a, for example, a, um, another ALS patient, those patients will be likely dead sooner than the patients who had a functional Treg. And so Tregs were uh, elucidated to play a critical role, and they're the master regulatory cell of the immune system. So we know to prop up the Tregs, which cover many different pathways downstream, but we also hit other inflammatory pathways with our other component of the, the 302, which is CTLA-4, and that reduces the myeloid cells and the macrophages, which play another important role in causing T-Rex to become dysfunctional. And they also play a role in ALS. So by doing that, we actually go above and beyond what other people are doing in, in the inflammatory pathway. And I can let me just talk to you by why inflammation is important. It turns out that the motor neurons at the, at the periphery in terms of the neuromuscular junction outside of the blood-brain barrier are until very late stage disease, usually anatomically intact, but they're functionally intact. So we believe that the immune system and the myeloid cells and the macrophages may play an important role in that functional dysfunction at the motor neuron. And if you can remove that functional block, this, that block of immune cells, you can actually have the muscles working better and the, the signals firing between the, the, the neuron and the muscles. And so that's why we think that the uh, attacking inflammation and the, and the associated oxidative stress is a critical function of uh, uh, intervening and having disease modifying capability. Can you measure that in a patient? Can you see it on imaging or use blood or CNS fluid to determine the inflammatory activity and yeah. the health of the Tregs? Absolutely, yes. We, so that's all the things that we've done in our proof of concept clinical study. We measured, you can actually quantify the regulatory T cell function. So you can see how functional or dysfunctional those Tregs are. You can also measure the Treg numbers and raw numbers and see how that's impacted. And then you can actually measure inflammatory pathways. You can do proteomics and you can do immunoassays and, and you can look at uh, various cytokines that are going up and down. And then you have the ability to look at oxidative stress. That is also a very important process associated with ALS. So you do all of that and it becomes a much more objective way beyond just looking at the ALS FRS score, which is the functional scale. So within the world of ALS therapies today, how unique is Koya's approach? Well, we have always been uh, talking at the top of the, the, the banister that the regulatory T cells are an important target for ALS and will continue doing so. And so we started off with cell therapy and we quickly went to biologics to enhance T-Rex. So we've been unique all the way from the beginning in leading the way on regulatory T-cell enhancement. But the, the novel discoveries are that if you synergize two drugs together, you can get a beneficial effect above and beyond the single drugs like they've discovered in oncology and like they've discovered in HIV and AIDS. So in that capacity, we're very unique. We're very differentiated, and we, in fact, modify biomarkers, blood biomarkers, and we haven't 
we haven't published these data yet, but I think that's when that comes out, that's also going to be a separation and a uniqueness that uh, others who have been really looking for more objective manners of uh, mod modifying uh, these, uh, these objective blood or serum markers. Uh, let's talk about your experimental therapy, Koya 302, which you mentioned is a, a combination of two biologics. What are the components and how is this prepared and delivered? Sure. So our therapy, so Koya 302 is two different biologics. The first biologic is low-dose interleukin-2, and it has been prepared in a very low-dose format and in a way that you can deliver it in a cutaneous injection, uh, which makes this much easier to do. So imagine uh, the patient goes home, we give them these syringes or a vial, and the patients, typically uh, syringes, the patient can be injected by their caregiver or even themselves, much like an insulin injection. And they do it over a given period of time on a, on a daily basis. Uh, the other drug is the CTLA-4-IG, which is the biosimilar of a Betacep, which we licensed from Dr. Reddy's. And that drug is also a subcutaneous injection, uh, which can also be administered in the home setting as well. So these are very easily administered. It overcomes lots of challenges by patients having to go to the, uh, to the physician's office or even to the hospital setting. It requires no, it's subcutaneous injections, it requires no uh, CSF administration, intrathecal administrations, like many of these other drugs, where they're just trying to in have multiple injections through uh, the spinal cord. And that's just not a very convenient and it's a very painful way to deliver drugs. Our method is, uh, I think, more streamlined and achieves the results that we're aiming to achieve. So as you noted, combination therapies are not unusual to see in areas like cancer, uh, certainly in inf certain infectious diseases. What's the case for using it with a neurodegenerative condition like ALS? Uh, much like cancers, and it, it involves the, the, as I mentioned before, the immune system plays a critical role. And as we've learned in cancer, the immune system is redundant. So if you a target and attack one component of the immune system, another one can take over and it results in resistance to those chemotherapies or those targeted therapies. So the only way to, to attack that is to block various aspects. So there's the innate immune system and there's the adaptive immune system. And that's what these cancer drugs are targeting to actually do the exact opposite of what we're doing. It actually ramps up the inflammation. You wanna block the T-Rex. You wanna block the other aspects of the immune system to actually enhance components of the immune system. We're doing the exact opposite. We're ramping up the T-Rex so that you block the inflammatory process. But like oncology, you, you do that, you get the dysfunctions and other aspects of the immune system which are not handled exclusively by the T-Rex. And so we have simply discovered other pathways that when you combine with the Treg enhancement provide synergistic results in terms of the, the clinical and the, uh, the combination, the, the potential benefit. And is the expectation that this would slow progression? Could it halt progression or even reverse it? Well, I 
from what we've seen in our small, in our open label clinical trial in patients, it stopped the progression out to six months. And the, this was in a population of patients who were progressing prior to treatment. So our goal is, of course, is to halt progression. And, but we are uh, designing our trial, not with the, the expectation that it will do so, but we wanna be more conservative. So we're planning it that it will slow progression. But of course, if we can hold progression and have patients live much longer and uh, be, this be more chronic disease uh, and patients just can live with, uh, live with this, um, the disease like HIV and AIDS, that's really where uh, we want to target. What else is known about COYA302 from the studies that have been done to date? Well, it, it appears to be safe and well tolerated. The main side effects were injection site reactions, which are simply, and you see this a lot with uh, any injection, any subcutaneous injection, but it re it's resolved just by taking Advil or Tylenol. Uh, we don't see any blood abnormalities, any EKG abnormalities, any liver dysfunction, any infection, higher risk of infections to date. Uh, the toxicology work that we've done on the, on the drugs in, in rats uh, also looks very clean. So uh, from a safety to and tolerability standpoint, we're very confident. From the clinical efficacy, it looks to be very promising, as I mentioned, what we did in terms of these patients. And of course, the only way to really validate this and quantify the, uh, the true benefit is to run a large, double-blind, randomized, well-controlled trial and to do it at multiple sites so that we can get a, uh, hopefully, a statistically significant difference at the, the desired endpoint. Koya is a public company. You became CEO following the merger between Koya with Nikoya Health. The, the company was a rare small biotech IPO in 2023. It raised $15.25 million. Given the size of the offering, why did you decide to go public in this environment? Right. So it, it was a very challenging year last year. Everyone knows it. But believe it or not, it was harder for private companies to remain private than for public companies to access capital. And that's the unfortunate reality. A lot of these funds are investors, both in private and public. So we had existing investors who invested in our company, both in the IPO, as well as the Series A investment. And uh, they were very supportive of our company. And they said, look, we will re-up the investment if you go public and if you are able to have a tradable marketable security and set yourself at a valuation that was reasonable where people can make money long term so we because we didn't have a lot of paid in capital going into the deal we weren't one of these companies who had to set a valuation that was so unreasonable that you couldn't attract investors so we were in more opportune situation to go public at a valuation that was decent for for investors and uh, we were all investors in the deal, and that also helped our cause. People saw that we were putting our own money into the deal, skin in the game, and ultimately that combined with the science and the, the clinical data that we've uh, generated to date, it just was a, it was a convincing uh, factor for our investors, and so we made it happen. And what's the plan to raise funding to, to carry you forward? How much runway do you have right now? And, and what, are you, what are you thinking in terms of additional financing? Right. So we are 
and all the guidance, as we said, is we are good through the through the second quarter of 24 and uh, into the second quarter of 24. And I can tell you, though, that we are uh, in vigorous discussions. I'll use that word with uh, strategic partnerships and I'll leave it at that. But uh, we are bullish on the process and uh, we're excited about uh, starting our clinical trial uh, next year. Howard Berman, Chairman and CEO of Coya Therapeutics. Howard, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.